They say the world can be hard, cruel, and ugly. Trust me, it gets worse if you're hungry and thirst. Doesn't push you from position, last place to first. Can't build a foundation without having feet in the dirt. So I put in the work, grind harder than most. I don't chase accolades of the living, I'm facing a ghost. That's what makes me the GOAT. Depending on who you ask, my brother, whatever task. Got it covered like a mask, guaranteed they can't see me at the open run. Cause I cook competitors until they look well done. Don't act like you don't know where I held from. I had to climb about the trenches, sit on benches till my time had come. Don't be mad at the player, be mad at the game. Sneak this in the hating, that's a flag on the play. Me falling off, huh? That'll be the day I'm like, bolt in the race, leave the track, flambe, it's the open run. I am one who is loath to generalize. It's not a thing I like to do. From time to time, it happens. Almost feels natural to do it, which bothers me to some degree. But when I think of being a black man, being around people in my community, for the most part, I've noticed in my experience that we are a rhythmic people. We like rhymes. It feels right. Whether it be in our coded language through the enslavement of our ancestors or other things. It's just, we make everything cool. It just seems like that. It's my experience. And we like to rhyme. Think about the late Johnny Cochran, who helped Ortho James Simpson be exonerated from his crimes or alleged crimes because he was acquitted. The glove that they, I guess they said he committed the crimes with didn't fit his hands. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Well, people co-opt what we do stylistically. We've seen this. We call them culture vultures, things of this nature. But as a youth, as a weed lad, I recall this hardware store called Ace. It had a little jingle, had a little rhyme to it. Ace is the place for the helpful hardware folks or something like that, right? Ace is the place. It's stuck in my head. And hardware is where we're at right now when we're talking about things that are going on in the National Basketball Association in the world, really. And some places are not built to handle some of the stories that are coming out of the league right now. Case in point, ESPN's first take and the Boston Celtics scandal with suspended. And suspended is just a temporary title. It's done in Boston and in the NBA for Ime Yudoka for a multitude of reasons we'll get into. But I've always said that a good craftsman never blames his tools. And we're going to make sure we have you equipped properly as I welcome you to The Open Run with Will Strickland. That would be me. The Open Run with Will Strickland is brought to you by the fine folks at Press. We are Press.net. I can be found across these rough interweb streets at W underscore Strickland and the number one on Twitter. Will Strickland and the number one on IG and across all streaming platforms where podcasts can be found especially and exclusively at this point on Anchor.fm. On my old podcast, All Balls Don't Bounce with my partners, Morgan Campbell and Dwayne Watson, we were the WMDs. We were the weapons of media deconstruction. It's Will, Morgan, and Dwayne. It was clever. Like I said, a good craftsman never blames his tools. And that was a good one. We had this thing where we looked at the story behind the story in sports And it was always curious to us how black athletes somehow needed validation from, I guess, the white sports intelligentsia before they could be acknowledged as great. Case in point, Jackie Robinson or 
I've told this Usain Bolt story before, where right after Michael Phelps got busted for smoking weed at a party in North Carolina, and this was after the Olympics, and everyone was asking who's the greatest Olympian of all time, Phelps or Usain Bolt. Then there were all these think tank pieces on how can an island of 2.3 million people be so dominant in athletics, is what the British and the British Commonwealth call track and field, athletics. On a planet of 8 plus billion people, how can they be so dominant? Let's find out by examining what the world's fastest man does to be the world's fastest man. So they go down and they find out that Bolt eats yam and banana every day for breakfast. Yam and banana every single day. And through their extensive research, they come up with a, a paper that says steroid-like qualities are found in Bolt's breakfast. The first thing you see, because we live in the attention economy and the embrace debate economy, salacious in the cells, clickbait cells. You see steroid, you don't see steroid-like, you see steroid and Bolt. Right away, he's cheating. Until you read the piece. And you find out that it takes almost 5,000 pounds of these yams every day for both to eat those. 5,000 pounds in order to create 50 cc's of a steroid light quality. Not even a steroid. But the damage was done. People run rampant. That's what they do on these rough interweb streets. And that's what they've done with the Emei Yudoka story. Now, for those who don't know, Boston Celtics. Let me pull out my air quotes. Head coach. Because Emei Yudoka is basically done. The suspension for a year with no real intention on if and when they're going to bring him back means he's gone. They're delaying it because of legalities. They want to make sure they go through the proper process so he doesn't sue them. I understand it. But who are the culpable parties here outside of Ime Yudoka as we investigate and authenticate? What was the intention of the leak? The rumor mill on these rough interweb streets was that it was a player who started and they started talking about all these women who... I'm not going to even name. One in particular I'm a big fan of. They have to suffer through that. Their families have to suffer through that. These rumors about their fidelity to their loved ones. It is said and alleged that through a months-long investigation by a third party outside of the Celtics, that Coach Yudoka carried on multiple consensual, this is what they said, consensual relationships with multiple staffers, including the wife, so it wasn't a staffer, the wife of a high-ranking executive in the Celtic front office and someone probably below his pay grade. There are a couple of issues there. One, the person who asked for the year's suspension was the exec, according to the allegation. And two, it could be alleged that Yudoka utilized his position to force this underling, this subordinate, into a relationship claiming it was consensual, but it could be something else. Again, as we stand on Conjecture Corner and Speculation Drive, I'm not going to do a deep dive into those things. Just talking about what's on the table right now. So those women, for the time being, have been exonerated by me for this conversation, but they were exonerated by Whit Grosbeck, the managing governor of the Celtics, and also Brad Stevens, the president of operations, when they had their press conference on Coach Udoka. But why were they so cryptic in their statements? They mentioned him, but again, if it's a consensual situation and he's not married, then the code of conduct, which is in his contract, guaranteed, multi-billion dollar corporations generally have this for all of their high-ranking employees. Udoka is one of them. So did he violate the code of conduct? Did it warrant a year suspension? If that's the case, understood. But there's more to this because if it was, again, consensual, 
then what was the issue other than that? Well, Matt Barnes, a man who was not afraid of controversy, stood up initially in support of Coach Udoka, then got some inside information from behind the scenes that it informed him enough that he took down a social media post in support of Coach Udoka. If Matt Barnes finds what you're doing messy, it's really messy. But let's get back to the craftspeople here at ESPN outside of the leak. Let's get back to that. Malika Andrews, NBA Today, and Screamin' A. Smith from First Take got into a little tiff on air. And this was where a couple of different things had come out. Now, it is no secret that the city of Boston is well known for its seafood, its sports teams, and its pervasive racism. You can throw in sexism there as well when you have a male-dominated society, in particular certain kinds of males. But it would seem, based on cursory understanding, that Malika Andrews was supporting and protecting, looking to protect the women who were involved in this, why men were saying, look, if it was consensual, why are they not being named? And Screaming A was like, well, this seems kind of racist the way they're doing this investigation and why they're only out in Udoka and not giving us really details. They're just saying, oh, we're going to suspend him because of the investigation. We're going to give you cryptic information about the investigation. And that's what we're going to say about this for now, even though this has been a months long investigation, even during the NBA finals. So I asked the question because First Take is not equipped to handle something like this. They do the embrace debate. He who argues and yells the loudest wins the argument. Nah, this is too nuanced for that. So this is not where you apply your craft, where you talk about something like this. Not on First Take. Even when they try to do it on Malika Andrews' show, as soon as Kendrick Perkins, an insider with the Celtics, who works for the Celtics, who said he had the inside information, Andrews cut him off. They took him off air. I have questions, but again, this will all be developing over the next couple of weeks, and maybe we never know. But in everyone's rush to judgment, everyone's desire to break it first, things get lost in the fire. It's not always good for anyone involved in it. What if this investigation in Boston had been going on and they won the championship? Would this information have come out? But let's put some context to it. We've been doing a lot of deep digging on people like Robert Sarver, and we're going to do the same thing with eBay and Yudoka. It's not going to turn up any good stuff, from what I understand. The rumor is that he's pretty much done. I'm not just talking about Boston. I'm talking about coaching in the NBA at all. I have a former teammate who I played basketball with at Rice University, who was in the front office of the Boston Celtics. You know mom's the word up there, so I'm not even going to reach out to him on that. So life is imploding. Everyone's talking about, oh, well, how can you do this to Nia Long? As if infidelity, if you want to call it that, because I've heard everything from they've been separated or they've gone through a rough patch. People have issues. Sometimes they work them out. It's amazing how that works. Everybody said, you can't cheat on Beyonce. Guess that happened too, and they worked it out. So whatever's happening with Neil Long and Ime Udoka, who both released statements, said they will not say anything else about it, that it's time for them to kind of get better, heal their families, heal themselves, I respect it. The story's going to go on. They know that. They don't have to add to it, though. But it also made me question when we talk about this code of conduct, the relationship between an employer and an employee 
someone in a position of power and someone who can be manipulated as a result of that power. Exhibit A, Jeannie Buss and Phil Jackson. Any claws there? And again, we don't have all the information. Why is this dynamic different than whatever Yudoka was doing? Again, we don't know everything yet, but on the surface, I asked the question. We can ponder it. Like I said, we're here on Conjecture Corner and Speculation Drive. The team has obviously moved on in media day. The guys are saying, hey, look, we're looking to move forward. We're a little confused about what's going on. We don't really know. We're looking at Joe Mazzula, who was the interim coach, and that interim may be coming off sooner than later. I know that William Felton Russell is rolling over in his grave right now as they put the number six patch on every uniform in the league and on the floor in the parquet where he plied this trade in a city that didn't appreciate the greatest winner in team sports history. The Ime Udoka sully the reputation of all the black coaches in Boston? That's what people are asking. I'm like, wow. So from Bill Russell to KC Jones, ML Card, well, not ML Card so much. He's a clown. And Glenn Rivers, a guy who was considered one of the top coaches in the league last year, who totally flipped around the Boston Celtics, is now, in effect, out of a job, maybe out of a relationship, and will draw a deep dive examination into codes of conduct clauses and how people in these positions interact not only with their superiors, but also their subordinates. It's a lot to go on. As the powers that be will continue to investigate and authenticate the stories, the allegations, the lies, and the things we may never hear about in this sad and sordid tale in Beantown. But in the meantime, in between time, please make a note to come back to the podcast where basketball and life are one. It's the open run with Will Strickland. War. Right after. Back, give you more of what you asked for. It's the open run with Will Strickland. If those hoops content, the must, you must go with the name you can quickly trust. I'm not saying number one. Oh, I'm sorry, I lied. Number one, two, three, four, and five. And I'm live and direct with my brother, DJ Kenny Parker, DJ, Hooper, scholar, and now an author, producer. I love that out. Everything. What's up, KP? It's been a minute, man. Yes, sir. My brother Strick. First of all, the people don't know that we go back. This is my man Strick. I'm going to say that. It's my man Strick. Not just this is Will Strickland. The whole. This is my man. All no right. Doubt. And it's, it's great, man. I always say we go back like a fat crayons and car seats. Yeah, yeah. But it's something I do with each and every one of my guests who come on the podcast as I have them run their resume. But I really, and I'm going to have you run your resume, no doubt. Sure. But I want to talk about from the very beginning, for those who don't know, part of the reason that we're doing this day outside of the fact that you're dope is that you've gotten a new endeavor. We're going to get into that real deep in the next segment. But mm-hmm. let people know when I said you're an author now, you wrote a book. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? What that book is, or the name of that book? We're going to get into what it's about in a second. The book is called My Brother's Name is Kenny. Everybody knows me from that line from the My Philosophy song, uh, Boogie Down Productions. My brother's name is Kenny the greatest true hip hop story ever told. And I'm not the type of person that would throw that title out there like that, but 
I believe in my heart that it is the greatest true hip hop story ever told. And um, so I titled it that, and I will hope everybody agrees. Well, I'm gonna get into how you decided to document your life in this way. I mean, we come from a place where oftentimes, especially in, in situations where there's some tough times in life, we either bury that and go to the grave with it, mm-hmm. or we fight it out. And once we fight it out, it's done. Right. You know, we don't do a whole lot of trauma porn dancing around my way. Right. Right. Let's go. Unless, and this is the argument for a lot of people, the trauma porn happens in our current rap music where everything we do is embracing the idea of death and and black people. Right. So as someone who is an educator who created and taught the world's first university accredited course on hip hop culture, that concerns me. That makes me think from the time where guys are saying I'm in the drug game to escape the life that was in to now all I do is drugs. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, they went from selling I mean, users. Yeah. And so and I'm not again, I'm trying not to be the, the old guy, get off my lawn, dude. Right. But at the same time, it, it is very important for me to kind of point out that we embrace oh. this kind of trauma porn and it's tough. But you coming from a place where you saw the genesis of this thing. I want to get to your genesis in basketball. This is the basketball podcast. I'm sure every time I watch March Madness this year. Mm-hmm. And so my man Shaheen Holloway mm-hmm. and the Peacocks Peacock, doing their thing. The first person I thought about, my man Kenny Parker. Yes. Now, I mean, those who don't know, you hooped there. Yes, four years. So tell me about tell me about your experience at St. Peter's in Jersey City, New Jersey, where we connected. Actually, and we're gonna get into that too, because we were trying to figure out the other day where we really first connected, and right. I'm gonna get into that in a second. Right. Well, shout out to St. Peter's University. When I went there, it was St. Peter's College. Wow. Then it, okay. It's now university. And, you know, like any ball player, I had my ups and downs there. You know, I've had, I, I, I did the whole gamut there. I was the starter and leading scorer, and I was on the bench. So I, you know, I went through, I went through every possible thing you could imagine at that school, but it was a great experience for me. You know, I went in there as an 18-year-old kid. And I left out of there as a 22-year-old, I don't want to say adult, because 22 is really borderline to me now at, at my age. But at that time, a 22-year-old adult, and it was a great experience for me. And I was so proud watching the Peacocks. I mean, they had the greatest run in NCAA history this year. 100%. 100%. I, without, I, winning, without winning the title. Without winning the title. Without winning you, the title. I mean, but right. to go that far, this was the greatest run in modern history, maybe. I mean, no seed with 15 seed ever reached the Elite Eight, ever. Right. And, you know, so shouts out to those guys. And and think about when you say running the gamut. I mean, we all go through that thing. You ride that mm-hmm. roller coaster, especially in college where, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes the coaches be messing with your emotions and stuff. I, I and all of that, yeah. All of that. And, and I think that as great as that run was, the whole city of Jersey City was gassed. But we talked about when we first met because we used to hoop. For those who don't know, what was the name of the school? We who we like we hooped a couple of times a week in there. Thirty seven school in Jersey City. It's called right. Thirty Seven School downtown. Not too, far away, not too far away from St. Anthony's, the heralded St. Anthony's High the corner, School. Maybe two blocks. Maybe two maybe blocks that. away. 
Yeah. So shouts out to the Bob Hurley and, and all the young cats who came through there. There's a bunch of NBA cats who came yes. to that little school. Right. I remember when I was at St. Peter's, a lot of those guys were young. Like uh, I met Bobby Hurley when he was like a sophomore mm. and Jerry Walker. These guys were young. Shout out to Jerry. Shout out to Jasper Walker, his brother, who I played with mm. in college. And I met I met Danny Walker. He was a little kid dribbling mm. around. I remember trying to like, you know, steal a ball from him and play around with him. He was like eight or nine. Skill. And to see him, you know, go on to start Seton Hall and become a coach is just amazing. Like, I met these guys as little kids, you know, when they were right. the, num the number one, they became the number one high school team in America. Yeah. You know, Terry, shout to Terry DeHair. Right. All those I guys. Mean, you're I, part of that Seton Hall legacy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mean uh, Jerry Walker used to hold a tournament in Jersey City. Yeah. Yeah. And the second and one mixtape, if I'm not mistaken, in the second or third, always get this mixed up. They came down and we played against the guys from Man One Mixtape on the mixtape for Jerry Walker's tournament. The funny, or I don't want to say the funny part, the messed up part was toward the end of it, you know, as shenanigans go, right? Somebody came out and let the musket bust. And we were scattering everywhere. So this is part of that thing. And, and Jerry Walker and Terry DeHair, again, for those who don't know, went to Seton Hall, uh, late 80s, early 90s, those cats. Um, shortly after, they went to the NCAA tournament and played mm -hmm. against the University of Michigan, go blue all day, every day. Shouts out to Actually, Glenn Actually, that was a little bit before that we played that team. Um, we used to play mm -hmm. Seton Hall. St. Peter's College used to play Seton Hall every year. Mm -hmm. And we played that that team that went to the uh, – to the final, John Morton, yeah. Morton Daryl Walker, my man Gerald Green is from around my way in Bed Stuy, Brooklyn. He was the point guard. Ramon Ramos, shout out to him. I knew I knew everybody yeah. on the team practically because we used to play them, and I knew some of the guys. James Major, shout out to right. all of those guys that went that went to the uh, the national championship. If it wasn't for I think Ramil Robinson hit a shot, they might have won it all. Yeah, Ramil did that shot. Yep, no yeah. doubt. You think about when we play and shout out to all the cats we play with in, in that little basement gym. Yeah. Jermaine and Daryl and, and cats like that. I remember my man, Will, blessed the dead. He passed away. But we were having this conversation. You and I were having the conversation the other day. And we couldn't remember where we actually met. You right. thought it was at the gym. I thought it was at 37 school. Yeah. But we actually met around 1990 Whew. on Arsenio Hall. So when Chris, so for those, I guess, if you haven't realized by now, since he said BDP, you see the plaque behind him. He's the brother, the younger brother of the artist formerly known as Lawrence Krishna Parker, a.k.a. Knowledge reigns supreme over nearly everyone. If you take the yeah. first letters of what I just sung, you spell his name. Right. Knowledge elementary, of course, of course. Elementary. So <laughs> you know where I am. They were doing a performance, and it was one of my favorite performances on Arsenio. Arsenio shout out to Arsenio Hall for giving a gateway at that time for young artists from our culture to have national television spotlight. Yeah, you know Don Cornelius, blessed dead, didn't like rap. Did not like rap at all. And um, at we, all. we actually did. We actually did Soul Train years later, and he was cool. But this is like 95. He was at that cool. point he had to embrace it. It, it broke him. Hip-hop broke him. So he had to get with it. But the Wait, early days, I mean, listen, he was, Samuel, he was, Jackson was Samuel L. Jackson was like that, too. He was like, why are these rappers coming to take our jobs? And now he's like, I want a rapper in my movie. You know what I mean? Like, So it, eventually, 
that's one of the great things about the culture is that you can try to deny it, but it's about people, it's about energy. It's, whether you believe this or not, it is about peace, love, unity, and having fun. Yeah, and hip hop has come a long way. Hip hop has come a long way being itself. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot Love of people that. would not brace hip hop. We said we're going to be who we are and we're just going to march forward. And mm -hmm. all the people that didn't like hip hop either had to get with it because it became the hottest thing and their children were on their backs or mm -hmm. they learned to understand it and love it. You know, we're your children. We're R&B's children. We're your children. This I mean, is you talk about that in the book. You talk yes, about I that do. in the book a little bit. Yes, for sure. And I how do. your mom eventually embraced it. Again, I don't want to give it too much away. I want people to read the book. But yeah, the, it was the episode where Chris was doing Love's Gonna Get You, one of my favorite songs of all time. Yes. I just remember how simple that video was, but how effective it was. It's probably the most effective video in rap music history to me personally. Yes. Yeah. Because I, of the story he told. Yeah. And some of the some of that story is true. Right. Listen, again, it's in the book. It's in the book. Three kids I mean, with my brother I share. Yeah, that is absolute <laughs> fact. Actually, three pair of pants would have been a nice. That was a nice run. That's a good run. <laughs> but that whole performance, Chris is not even playing the crowd as an entity with rap that utilizes crowd participation mm -hmm. for it to work. Mm -hmm. Chris was playing it like he was talking to his man Willie D. Yes, on the stage the whole time. He didn't look back at you. I mean, he looked back at you a couple of times, but that's where we met. Backstage, and you know, I mean, we're, we're we're out, like, wow, that's that's that was a great place to meet, first of all, right? Um, and a great concert. And I didn't, I didn't remember that, but you described it so vividly. I'm like, he had to be there. 100%. I mean, the way he described you, you described things that you had to, you had to be there to, to to remember that. So absolutely, and I see that in your book too. And that's what I'm saying. Like you, to, for you to document some of the stuff you documented. And have held that away for so many years because mm -hmm. you didn't write this book 30 years ago. Right. You didn't write it 20 years ago, but you've been writing it for the past 20, 30 years, 40 yeah. years, whatever it might Absolutely. be. Absolutely. It's funny that we could say 40 years. Just like that. And it's yeah. just like that. For you young people watching, it's just <laughs> like that, man. One day it's this, and next day, you know, it's funny when somebody say, Yeah, this song, this album debuted. 30 years ago, and I'm like, that was 30 years ago? I remember just picking up this album and just playing. That was 30 years. It happens just like that. When we say the 90s, it feels like it was just yesterday. And <laughs> yes, then you go, wait, 1992 was 30 years ago, my guy. Crazy. 92 doesn't feel like it. it was like, we feel like we're at the beginning of the millennium. We're not. Right. We're 20 years ahead. <laughs> I'm like, man. And All the stuff we've done that we're still here. 100%, 100%. So some, my, my nephew said something to me about, um, we were shooting, we were playing basketball, and he said, Uncle Will, that's a brick. I said, you realize how many different meanings of the word brick there are? <laughs> Think about that. In the tri-state area, when it's cold, what is it, sir? It's brick outside. <laughs> <laughs> so we're playing basketball. I'm trying to explain this to my nephew. Like, he never lived up north. He always mm -hmm. lived down south. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, no, not like that. It means like you shot a bad shot. I said, I didn't shoot a bad shot. I'm busting your face, son. In your face. You can't stop this. I can shoot <laughs> over the top of you every time. So, oh, you know, I'm still out there talking crazy, too. Yes, right? and but, you, had that, you had this one move that I can never figure out. And I even asked you to explain it, how you drive baseline like you're going to reverse it. 
Oh and yeah, spin it back. <laughs> right, right. Goes, I've never seen anyone do this move, and it was you do it consistently. Right, and I'm like, how did you do? It? Show me this. Show me. I don't want people to block my. When I go for the right. reverse, you make it look like you're going to shoot a reverse. You sell it. You sell so it. Thing, you gotta sell it. And so when you reach this way, and I bring it back and just spin it off the glass. Shouts out to my man Marvin Moore. He was a guard, and I watched him in layup line. I'm like, why is he doing that? We ended up being teammates at Rice University. Yeah. Okay. But I took that from him. I saw him doing them like I for a whole summer. I was out in the backwards just messing with angles. When you talk about guys from New Jersey like Kyrie Irving, like understanding how to take that thing off the glass or the backboard. I spent my whole summer working on a move that I saw some dude in high school do and put it in my thing. That's how you get better, no? You talked about you talked about I thought I saw one of your photos on Instagram where you were sitting with your brother or you're standing with your brother and the great Fred Crew, aka who yeah. DJ Red Alert, yeah. My inspiration. You watch him DJ at the yeah. station. Yes. Right. And you worked on stuff the same way that, you know you do that. Look, I always use the term a good craftsman never blames his tools. If you don't work at your craft, you can never be great at it. Absolutely. And to to watch Marvin do his thing, to watch Red Alert do his thing and to become better and more proficient at it. I do recall another incident, which is funny. You were DJing at Two Eyes ah, in New York City. Not two Eyes, 14th Street and 8th Avenue. Yep. And it's right next to an infamous club, for those who don't know. It's infamous for the wrong reasons. Shouts <laughs> out to Tupac, the late, great Tupac Amaru Shakur. That's, that's right. That's where that incident happened. Nels. Yes, right next Nels. door. The club basically. is called Nels, where he met the girl. We mm. ended up catching a case over. Yeah. Yeah. But KP was spending in one night and I told him to come through. My cousin dude was coming through for the weekend. We we're going to hang out. So we came to the club. And at the time I was uh, dating a young lady. She came with us. She was actually in the best man. She's sitting next to somebody who's in the news a lot today. Nia Long on the ah, dais. Cool. She's sitting right there. She's the only one that's eating. She used to actually babysit Malcolm Lee's children. That's how she got in the movie. The guy who directed the film, right? Nope. So we're coming to the club, and my little cousin can drink a little bit. You know, he he has he, he can take drinks. I don't drink or smoke. I'm Maybe. a square like that. Right. So we're, we have that in common. Yes. So I'm thinking, I come in, we introduce you to my cousin, my girl, whatever at the time. And we go get a booth. We're chilling. They go out. They dance a little bit. He orders a dirty martini. My man comes back. He drinks that martini, and he splatted. And I'm like... You sleepy? You t- you've been traveling. I get it, but mm-hmm. are you okay? He was non-responsive, and I was shook. All I could think about was my aunt Joyce. I'm about to die. I'm about to die. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like four o'clock in the morning. We're trying to walk out. You know the cops are outside waiting mm-hmm. to see if people are like wilding out when you come out of the club. Actually, on Fourteenth and Eighth, yes, one hundred percent. We're walking out of the club, and he was coherent enough to at least respond to the cop. And we're walking out and holding, you know, holding my arm around him like I'm taking you know, taking care of him and everything. Walking across Ninth because I had parked on the other side of Ninth, and you know, right that part on Ninth Avenue is like basically the last part before you go into the Holland Tunnel, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we're crossing there, and it's four four thirty in the morning. And my cousin, I guess he thought he was still in the club. He goes, "Yo, dog, I got to go to the bathroom." I guess he thought he was in the bathroom. So we're stopping in the middle of Ninth Avenue. 
cars zooming all around us, cabs, everything. My guy does what he got to do right in the middle of the street. And I'm standing there holding his shoulder so he don't die. And I'm thinking, man, are you crazy? You must love this person standing next to you. But I remember he and he, he goes, uh, when I told him I was interviewing you for the show, mm-hmm. he goes, man, don't tell him that story. I was like, you know I got to tell him that story. What people don't understand is that in New York City, 4 a.m. on 14th Street is prime time. It looks like 4 in the p.m. Really afternoon. Does. So really I would imagine this, this must have been dozens and dozens of people, police, all kind of people outside. I was shocked but not amazed at the fact that it happened. I actually had to leave him in the car when we got back to Jersey City. Mm-hmm. Like he would not get up. So I just left him in the car. He got up the next afternoon. He's like, yo, dog, let's go get some goat roti. I'm like, stop. <laughs> stop. Yo, you can't even stand up. But, you know, speaking of stand up, as I said earlier, when you came on, yes, the DJ, the Hooper, the producer, what are some of the favorite tracks you've ever produced in your life and for who? I did. Not well, name your brother. Not name your brother. I about to say, because he has a couple. I did a song with my homegirl, Heather B. Shout out to her called All Glocks Down. That sold a, a, a nice amount of copies. And we also did a song with M.O.P. Mm-hmm. On that song called My Kind of Blank, which I'm very mm-hmm. proud of that song. That was a hard record on all the mixtapes. I really love doing that song. I did a couple joints with Mad Lions, one of my brother's artists. Mm-hmm. I actually did a remix for Will Smith that never came out. What, a what song was that? Getting jiggy with it. Da, 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 da. Right. There's a Kenny Parker remix that got submitted that was this close to being on there. What was he still at job then or at Columbia? No, or something? he was on Columbia by then. The, okay. Yeah, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince was gone from Jive. And now this was Will Smith, the actor. Right. He wasn't Jazzy. No. He wasn't the Fresh Prince then. No. Actually, you I got a job at the same time. Huh? You guys were at job at around the same time, if I'm not mistaken. At the same time, yeah. Yeah. We was on job with Will Smith, Cool Mo D, mm-hmm. Billy Ocean, <laughs> uh, Samantha Fox. I remember when she had remember an Samantha album. Fox. Yeah, the, 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 that's a porn chick, right? Yeah, that was yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, no, it's cool. It's cool because I remember after the Source Awards in '95. It used to be a pizza spot right next to the Palladium. You remember that spot? Yes, I do. Amazing pizza. It was. And I'm like trying to, I was with Ed OG and the Bulldogs and Tay Ted and, and Special Shout K. Out, Shout out, out to the awesome too. 100%. I love and those guys. Loved them. We're walking into, we're trying to walk in. Like it was packed in that pizza spot because everybody's trying to get the after party for the Source Awards. That was a, the Trick Night Source Awards. Oh, oh, whoa. In 95, August whoa. 95. Whoa. Yes. If you don't want your producer all dancing in your videos, that source awards. So it was a hot night in New York. Trust mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going through and this. I feel somebody like punching me in my stomach and I'm looking around. I can't see anybody. I look down. It's Heather Hunter. She's trying to get in to get a slice of pizza. So I remember Samantha Fox. I'm going to save that Heather Hunter story for another day. Wow. Yeah. She used to be in the Latin quarters in New York back in the day. She's a straight hip hop. Oh, she really she, is. And she had a deal with Tommy Boy. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, she was guess where her record went. <laughs> no, no. Oh, no, no. You know what her record went, right? No. When it gets cold in New York, what is it? Brick. Brick. 
Oh, she caught a brick. If somebody say you caught a brick, that's an L too. In New 100%. York. I'm trying to tell you. Shout but out to no. Heather Hunter. She was friends with my brother's ex-wife, rest in peace, Miss Melody. Mm. They knew each other and was actually cool. So Miss Melody used to tell me, yeah, she used to be in Latin quarters all the time. This conversation took a crazy turn. Crazy turn. Yeah. Yeah. We want to yeah. jive with these people too short. Um, right. Tribe Core Quest. All of, of Job course. was popping for a second. Job is mm -hmm. one of the hottest rap labels in the in the world. And then they flipped. Didn't they? They flipped. They had like Britney Spears, Britney was Spears and Justin Timberlake. They just went completely and, and made hundreds of millions. Can, but, I, can I shout out? Can I shout out Eric Skinner and Jeff Sledge? Whoa, two of my favorite out. people of all time. Shout out Skinner. Sledge, <laughs> I used to get on Sledge nerves. I always wanted to come up there and get records out the record vault. Shout out to Sledge. No doubt. But, and I interrupt you, and I, I apologize, man. You talked about some of the favorite records you ever produced that weren't your brothers. Talk about the Will Smith remix. You got one or two others? Yeah. Uh, I've done some Nike commercials that I really liked. I, I, I can't remember. They were Nike... Uh, it, it, it escapes me now. Early, late '90s, I did some Nike commercials that were dope. You, mm -hmm. if it came on, you'd probably remember them. Like, oh, I remember that beat. That was me. Yeah, I was the first. I was the first producer ever on a reality television show. First oh, DJ shit. and producer ever. What, like Survivor or something? No, I was on. I was on before Survivor. What was that? I was on Real World season one, episode two. <sighs> For real, you just wow, you just hit me in the nugget with that. For real, so that was um, the, the one with Kevin Powell and all that, yeah. Right? And shout out to my people's Heather B. We mm -hmm. were in the studio working on some music, and MTV came to film. And I remember showing uh, the guys a guy named Eric Neese, yeah, that was on the show. Actually, that used to be a referee yeah. and be a Jack Neese for you, yes, there's a basketball connection. Oh, Eric Neese, I remember showing Eric Neese how to DJ on the show. It was a hot mess on there, but I was the first, <laughs> first DJ and hip hop producer ever on a reality television show. That's that is a nugget and a half, sir. That's a nugget and a half. So, some of the favorite artists you ever worked with that weren't your brother? I did a song with Parrish Smith after uh, when EPMD had broke up for a little while, mm. and I'm a huge EPMD fan. 100%. Love those guys, and um, you know, I got the chance to work with Parrish Smith on a song, and I was in the studio. I was just like, "Yo, man!" Like I wanted him to put on the fisherman hat and the whole thing. Like I, was, <laughs> <laughs> I was, that's a fan, right? That's a you fan. Know, right? You have to be cool, you know. We know, we know, we know. We've done a bunch of shows with EPMD, so you know this fam. But in the back of my mind, I'm always a hip hop fan. You know what I mean? So to meet people, I'm still like, "Yo, that's." Parish, you know what I'm saying? So I love that energy. People. I love that you still have that energy as much as Absolutely. you brought to the sport of rap and the culture of hip hop. That you're still a fan of those guys who are creators Absolutely. as well. Absolutely, I think that's a healthy, a healthy way to be as you produce and you do things in this and keeps you going. You, you just reminded me of something. Maybe now I'm thinking about where we might have met, and I'm not sure if this is the same tour. But there was a hit squad tour, and I, I'm sure it was a stop, but BDP was on it. Providence, Rhode Island. That was the, the I remember that was one of the nights when K Solo had a young man by the name of Reginald Noble DJing for him. Yes. 
Yes, that's actually a lot of people don't remember Redman yeah. used to DJ for K Solo. Yes. And I'm not talking who's who used to call himself K Solo. Not Lord Finesse. Um uh, what's my man's name? I'm I'm losing my I'm losing my mind right now. So no no no, you know who I'm talking about. What's your man got to do with me with NC oh, Light? Positive K. Positive K used to call himself K Solo and he's a big debate between K Solo and Positive K. Did not know that. Right? With the names, right? So K Solo was, you know, how guys are on the road, whatever, and everybody's spitting their rhymes and just doing different stuff. And Reggie was like, yo, I need to crack the mic one night. And everybody told him, don't let Reggie rap on stage in front of people. And in Providence, Rhode Island, K Solo allowed Redman to rap. And that was effectively the end of K Solo's career and the start <laughs> of Reggie Noble's career. He's I can it might have been it. I don't know if it was BDP on that tour. I don't remember, man. But it's I just remember vividly it was Providence, Rhode Island, and how everyone was telling K Solo, do not let him rhyme. I guess Solo felt a whole lot about you know his skills. You're right. He was and a dope MC. He was, but your mom's Red Man was a whole other thing. Red Man was a whole other thing. A whole other animal. Yeah, a whole and other animal. That's funny, man. It's funny to kind of share these stories with you. And I want to share some more. When we come back on the other side of this on the open run with Will Strickland. You're now listening to the sounds of the open run with Will Strickland, where the lecture is conducted from the mic into the speaker in conversation with my brother Kenny Parker. Yes. The author Kenny Parker. Yes. And his new book. My brother's name is Kenny, the greatest mm-hmm. true hip hop story ever told. Tell us a little bit about this. Like, what inspired you to write this book? Because I've been reading it, and shout out to you for, for sending it over to me so I could check it before we spoke. Because, like I said, I was blown away by some of the stuff, especially in your early life. Yeah. Blown away by it. Well, it's, it was a combination of things that happened. First of all, I consider myself a student of hip hop. So, you know, I've I've studied everybody's story. I read all the stories of people coming up. And everybody's story basically seems to be the same. I used to sell drugs or I was in a gang. I used to bust my guns. And then one day I decided to become a rapper. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, that that was the story that was going around. Then when 50 Cent came on the scene and he had got shot nine times and survived, then everybody got shot after that. Everybody was shot. So I'm like, right. okay, this is what we're doing now. Okay. So I'm like, well, you know, I have a story that's a little different. I grew up in the same hoods with these people, but no one ever tells the story from about the kids who weren't in gangs, who went to the library on their own and who played sports and shot Skelly and weren't thugs, which, by the way, is most of the kids in the hood. Say it again. Say it again, sir. Most of the kids in the hood are not in gangs and do not rob people. That's Mm. a specialized, you know, I I believe in the 80 20 rule. Mm -hmm. 20% of the people do 80% of the crimes Mm -hmm. to me. Most kids that I knew were regular kids that just wanted to have fun. But no one ever tells that hood story and to see what happened. They've been doing a KRS One story. It's a couple of times it was going to, you know, they're working on movies and stuff. And they always say, yeah, so Karis one was in the shelter and he met Scott LaRock and then they did Criminal Minded and we're going to go. And I'm like, I was saying, you know, but wait a minute, there's a whole story leading up to that moment 
that's incredible. And they'll go, yeah, 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 Kenny, don't worry. Just sit over there. You know, you'll be fine. We, we got this. Mm. And I, I, I was like, you know, pleading with people to look like, yo, I actually witnessed a miracle. Mm. Not just on what it took for me to escape the hood, but I watched my brother in, in, the, in the conditions that we were in. I watched him have a dream and take it all the way to becoming a hip hop icon. I actually saw a miracle and I wanted to tell everybody and nobody wouldn't believe me. Right. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to write a book and I'm mm. going to tell the story. And, you know, I went to my brother and I said, I'm writing a book, but I want to tell the whole story, the real, you know, the, the I want to really get into it. The, the embarrassing parts, the parts people don't know, everything. I said, I know you have like, you know, you have a 30 year crafted career, so I don't want to say anything that would hurt, you know, your image. So, you know, I asked him for permission and his exact words were, I don't give a fuck. Tell it all. And don't right. forget this. Don't forget this. So, right. so I'm like, okay, once he said that, I'm like, okay, it's on now. I'm telling everything. Well, so there's a level of authenticity to that, no doubt. It yeah. makes it actually a, like you said, a true and real story. It's everything is true. And, you know, I, I, I first I had to show you our background and I had to show you where we came from in, in, the, in the situation that we were in physically, mentally and emotionally and where my brother was at, how he became homeless and the whole mm. thing. And to see him go from that to lecturing at Harvard and Yale, it's 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 unbelievable to me. Mm. And I was like, I got to tell I got to tell people and I hope people enjoy the story. Well, I am a fan of origin stories, sir. And and for us to have had the kind of history we've had so far, I knew at some point Chris lived in Brooklyn because I remember yeah. Big Daddy Kane talking about him helping him move one day. Yes. yes. But I didn't. And I knew he was born in Brooklyn. Yes. But I did not know, you know, the the, the thinking when you think about the career of KRS-One is all Bronx. I mean, South Bronx, South South right. Bronx, right. forever. Right. But when you hear the Brooklyn connection and you realize how much that influence what he's done with his life and how you were the guy who kind of wait a minute how is this guy getting through life like this and, but he was your best friend yes and i thought i was supposed to do all the things that as and we get conditioned as young especially young black men mm -hmm. these are the things we need to do to succeed mm -hmm. your brother had a different path absolutely and again, I don't want to give away too much right. in the book. Right. I want people to get the book right. and to learn about that because you'd be surprised at a guy who is now known as the teacher and where he where he began and what happened. You talked about yeah. going to the library and what he got into um, when you yes. started going to the library on their yeah. Prospect Park, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, from the book. I'm trying to remember all this stuff from the top of my yeah. head. But you know, you know, I've read it, you know. And yeah. Yeah. Stuff, so. Thank you. Thank you for reading it. Come on, man. Come on. You don't have to. No, I'm, I'm a, you know, I want this story to get out there. And, and, you know, you was a, I know you're a hip hop head. See, I already know you. I know you're a head. Mm. So, you know, that's why I'm appreciative that you read it. You know, this gives you more, more insight. This helps me as someone who still teaches a course on hip hop culture. And I always pay homage to my heroes in the sport. Do you realize the course I taught at UMass, what it was called, what the name of the course was? No. Edutainment, the impact of hip hop on American culture. Dope, dope. The one I teach now is called UNITY, 
why hip hop culture is the world's culture. Shouts out to the artist formerly known as Dana Elaine Owens. Shout out to a great girl. Ladies first all the time. So for me, when when Chris used to stand, people thought he was crazy when he would say, I am hip hop. Everything I do is hip hop. When I eat my cereal, it's hip hop. At first, it seemed like it was an ego statement. But then when you really think about it, because of how we grew up, we are the essence of that thing. Yes. So everything we do, I'm teaching at a major state university, a thing that people thought was a fad. I'm teaching the genesis of that thing, not just, oh, here's this person made this many records and they sold this. I'm talking about the genesis of that thing. I'm talking about from the drum to hieroglyphs to Cab Calloway and saying, hi, hi, ho, and the call and response mm -hmm. that was rooted in our experiences, black people, when we, they gave us that all expense paid vacation over here about 500 years ago. Yes. One um, way. And so when we were, yeah, one way. And we were singing songs when they heard, oh, these, you know, these people are singing songs about the North Star. No, we're about to come and murder everybody in the house and bounce, hide in the swamps to get away from you. Right. Coded. Coded. When you hear double entendres in our music, where do you think it comes from? Mm -hmm. It's all part of our experience. And I try to get that part of it. So it's easy to talk about the industry. But for me, like you, to have the roots, we see the tree. That's mm -hmm. This is Chris and them talking about Scholar Rock and D-Nice. Shout out to D-Nice. Shout out to my man. You know? Wow, he's doing it. Is he ever? Is he ever? That's the D-Nice. But yeah. they see this. You're giving them the roots. The seed had to be planted somewhere. So your book, My Brother's Name is Kenny, is giving us the roots, how this whole thing started and how you were an integral part of that. You were right there the whole time. So what was it like growing up with Chris? Well, we were only 10 months apart. So basically, Irish twins. Yeah, Irish, Irish twins. twins. Yes. Right. So basically, we didn't have like an older brother, younger brother relationship. We were almost like equals. And I was really the lead most most of, of, of our lives growing up. I'm the one who made all the friends. And told him, come on, I got some friends over here. Come hang out. You know, I'm the one that played sports. So I played ball. He played ball. I mm -hmm. shot Skelly. He shot Skelly. So basically, he was following my lead up until hip hop happened. Right. And then it switched. And then he became the lead because he decided he was going to be a rapper, which I thought was absurd at the time right <laughs> you must be out of your mind to think you could be like the sugar hill gang mm. um and, and, and this is great this is a great segue because here's here's my thing we do this thing on the show called the association we talk about coded language and everything i'll throw some names and, and places or, or or you know phrases out there for you and i want you to give me like a brief thought on those things so the mm -hmm. first thing i'm going to say is marlin and nuki <laughs> Yes, you absolutely read the book, by the way. <laughs> uh, should, should I tell who they are or should I just... 100%, because I think it's important to what you just said about Chris making that shift to what you thought was absurd to now knowing who he is today. Marlon was the first kid to play us a rap tape that we heard rap. This kid Marlon moved on our block. He only lived on our block for just the summer. But he had these tapes. This is the summer of 1978. And he had these tapes of rappers. And this is our first exposure. Well, actually, we were exposed to Cool Herc years earlier. We actually lived, we lived in the next building over from Cool Herc when he invented hip hop. We was like in front of his door, which is mind boggling. 
but we were like seven years old. So, you know, on back the big then, wheel. yeah, back on our big wheel. But back then, you know, kids didn't go where adults went. Like if the adults were over here, you needed to be over there. Right. So, so if Cool Herc and those guys were over here, y'all needed to be over there. Right. But um, in 78, Marlon was the first guy who played us a cassette of hip hop, which blew our minds. And then a year later in 79, this kid, Nuki, who was the neighborhood bully, I'm not going to give away too much of what happened to him, but he was the first <laughs> guy who, uh, that we knew. He played us the second take. He was actually a rapper, right. a fledgling rapper. And he's the first one that we knew who spit. And this is the summer of 79. This is right before Rapper's Delight came out. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, next word. Spaghetti. <laughs> Spaghetti was my nickname. Right. That the cheerleaders gave me when I first started playing basketball in grammar school, junior high school. My legs looked so skinny in my shorts that they said it looked like spaghetti. And um <laughs> All the cheerleaders would get together and go, go spaghetti, go. Like they they loved me. Like that was my name. <laughs> and so, you know, they had the pomp of go spaghetti, go. Right. Like, spaghetti. Okay, you know, it could be worse. Let me just take the spaghetti and run with it. Cause you know, you know, my kids are, it could have been, and the way we looked back then, it could have been a lot of things. So right. let me take right. this spaghetti and be happy with spaghetti. Okay. <laughs> Rail splitters. Uh, that's the nickname of Abraham Lincoln High School. Shout out to the Lincoln High, who has won the most championships in New York City of any high school ever at this point. Um, that was my high school, Abraham Lincoln High School. Shout out to Coach Hartstein. He's retired now, but that was my coach back then. Well, some of the guys who actually went to that school, and I think that was a school that was part of Spike Lee's, he got game. Yes, that was the Ray high Allen, school. Ray Allen played Jesus Charlottesworth. Yes. Abraham Lincoln High School. Yes, the, yes. There's a, another, actually, Ray, of course, Ray did not go to that school. Jesus Charlottesworth did right. not go to that school. Right. But um, there are some guys who went to that school outside of Kenny Parker who were pretty nice, who came to the NBA. Yes. Um, one in particular, my man, Lance Stevenson, born ready. Shout out to Lance Stevenson. We saw him when mm -hmm. uh, we were hanging at last summer. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. There, Rucker Park. So for those who don't know, I ran into Kenny again. This is in 2019. This was 2019. Yeah, it wasn't. Too, we it come was down year. And, and Jermaine, we went to see Jermaine. So I don't know if Jermaine picked me up from the airport or not. He probably did. No, no. I got an Uber with my man Demi because we were staying in an Airbnb in Jersey City. Mm -hmm. I called Jermaine. He came and picked us up. And we were just talking. I mean, literally just talking about you. We're riding over near Newport, near the the, the mall, mm -hmm. and who do we see walking up the street? Me, yeah, right. I kid you not. <laughs> and I'm like, yo, you need to come out, Bobito. We're doing this thing with Bobito in the city. I would love for you to shoot an honorary shot. You know, it's been a minute since I seen you. Good seeing you, and you came out. And, yes, I did. And you didn't do the rail splitters or the peacocks proud that day, sir. I shot an air ball from three point range in front of everybody. Uh, it was all love. Yeah, it was hilarious. You know what, what what happened when you said after the um air ball, we were supposed to take a photo together, me, you, and Bobito, but you yes. got a call from someone at that time. You started yes. walking. Yes, you remember who the call was from? Yes, I got a call from my brother Chris. I had just sent him the the rough manuscript of the book 
to read over. And um, I had a we, me, I had a rule with Chris. I said, um, read the book, but you can't change anything. I said, right. this is my version of events. Not yours. This is what I saw. I said, mm-hmm. but if there's anything that you want me to take out that you don't want, you know, the public to know, I'll do that. And I said, if there's anything that's not factual in BDP, if I said anything that you feel didn't happen like that, tell me and I'll correct it. So, which neither one of them happened. He was he was happy with everything in the book, but he was calling me to give me his rundown of the book right when I was with you. Mm-hmm. I said, let me take a walk away from the, the basketball area so I could talk to Chris and um, I'll come right back. So I just started walking and talking. But as you guys know, Karis one can answer one question, could take an hour to answer. So <laughs> you guys know how Chris goes. Right. So, you know, we talked by the time I finished walking and talking, it was like two hours later. I was right. miles, miles from the park. Yes. <laughs> so I just went home. I was like, Yo, where's KP, man? Um, where'd he go? So I was supposed I'm to go around the block. Yeah, I'm yes. glad we reconnected though, um, because it's really important. And as I said to you before, like I will buy books to give away. I want to give at least one book away. I'll send you a copy. Yes. And you know you have to autograph mine. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what we're gonna do. I want the first person who can tell me the song that I quoted starting the second quarter of the podcast. If you write to me in my social media outlets, you know what they are. You get the book. It's that simple. Dope. Right? I guess one more for the association. Scott Monroe Sterling. Shout out to Scott LaRock. He was an interesting, interesting character, as I wrote in the book. Um, Very confident, super confident, dope producer, great musical ear. He passed away way too soon. Um, 100%. He uh, was the leader of BDP really at that point i mean if you ever go back and look at old boogie down productions interviews when scott was alive if you'll notice scott did most of the talking mm. chris was kind of in the back now imagine mm. karis one in the back as we know him today <laughs> back then if you really look at it chris kind of played the back you only really heard him talk on the criminal minded album every interview scott LaRock was like we're this bdp is this we're doing this we're doing this um, he wanted to be he was he wanted to be a mogul. He wanted to be a producer. He wanted to have groups. He wanted to cover the whole gamut. And it's just so unfortunate that he passed. Um, shout to him. No doubt. And you saying that reminded me of a video. Much music is like the MTV of Canada. You're right. 1984, they launched. In the 80s, rap tours were not that prevalent. Outside of Swatch Watch Fresh Fest. You didn't have a lot of that back in the day, okay? So touring, especially for the early artists, and when I say the early artists, I'm talking about that after that first wave, the second wave, you know, basically from like 84 to 88, 89, that second wave, mm-hmm. you know, they were touring around just the mid-Atlantic and Northeast. Right? Yes. A lot of times they would come to Toronto. A lot of people don't realize, it. I guess, the role that Toronto played in the early days of, of rap music. And when you watch this video, Scott's the one who's talking the most. It was Biz, Blessed Dead, the Biz. Shouts out to Vaughn Lee. 
you know, me, um, yes. it was Scott that was talking the most. I didn't realize that until you said it. It just clicked in my head. Yes. He was the one standing in front. And and you know, it's funny about that that real quick. Just Ice was supposed to be on the bill. Mm. He got stopped at the border because he had a warrant. Right. So, <laughs> you know, the Canadian border is dead serious. 100%. I know this personally. <laughs> so, For Just fact, Ice yeah. thought he could stroll across to get the money, and instead he got handcuffed. Listen, it, Shout it, to it, justice. It was- Shout out to him. Shouts out to to Toronto for actually being one of those early and forgotten places that before we could really tour the country or tour the world, that was one of the stops, the major stops. You Absolutely. know, you got Boston, you got Baltimore, you got Philly. Of course, you got New York and, and sometimes D.C. They were really go-go heavy. Right. But for the most part, that was it for touring until it really started to expand. People don't realize how regional hip-hop was back then. There was pockets of hip-hop. In the, in the country, if you lived out, like you said, the northeast, if you got away from the northeast, I mean, by the, you can get to like maybe Pittsburgh, right? Ohio ish, and then whole Midwest, and then Los Angeles. So you jump yeah. from like ish ish Ohio ish <laughs> all the way to then Los Angeles. That middle part, there was no hip hop at all. And just being, like you said, being at Ground Zero is an amazing thing. And to be a part of that is not to break my arm to pat myself on the back or do that to you as well. But we were just there. It was what it was. It was, what it was. And it was and so exciting. I tell young people all the time, like, it wasn't shrink wrapped in a jewel box and on a shelf at Best Buy. It wasn't in a video on top of a $400,000 car and a, a thong bikini. It was just what we did. It was what we did. Like it didn't have. It wasn't packaged like that. It was just. This is what we love. And this is our form of expression where we talk about kids want to, their names to ring out beyond their neighborhood. Got on the train, straight the train. If it went from, you know, the four, the four, five, and six went from here to here, or the A train went all the way through. Like you knew you were right? famous. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's an amazing thing. And I want you to tell me. Before we go, I was going to press you on a couple of different things, but I'm going to let you live. This is going to be real easy. I need for you to name me your five favorite Boogie Down Productions BDP songs ever. I can do that. Oh, are they? Wait, are they in order? Well, the number one is number one, and then the rest of them could be depending. Okay. Number one for no, leave number one for last. Leave number one for last. I'll go do the other ones. I'm still number one mm. is one of my favorite BDP songs and one of the biggest songs in the concerts that we did around the world. When that when those horns come on, it's a problem at a BDP show. I remember uh, the live album was like that. The live app was ridiculous. Shout out to the mm. live album. I did there's a lot of work. I was the first DJ to ever DJ on a live videotape and 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 uh I wanted VHS. to give you your props on that because I don't know Thank if you, you were gonna remember that. Thank you. It was, it was a lot. I was brand new to the game. I was brand new to the game, but I had been DJing for a few months when that when that when we recorded that. Mm-hmm. So I got thrown right in the fire. I went from mm-hmm. zero to world tour. I didn't have right. any middle, but um <laughs> yes, and D nice played me. I'm still number one for the first time in the studio. Shout out to him. That's in the mix. Step into a world. I'm going big hits. Those are two big step into a world. A funny story about that 
that song, I had just, I was just playing beats. We were all in the studio and I was just playing beats for the album I got next. Mm -hmm. And I put in my CD and I'm playing my beats, which I thought and still think were fire. And everybody <laughs> in the studio was just like, yeah, you know, cool. It's cool. And I took my CD out. As I'm taking my CD out, this guy named Jesse West was coming in the studio very quiet. And he put his CD in. Like, as I'm taking mine out, he put his in. And the first beat that came on was Step Into a World. And everybody in the studio went crazy. Oh! And I'm there like, damn. Like, you might just... When I say just, I'm talking minutes earlier, played what I thought was dope. And it was just like, yeah, you know, and then step into a world beat comes on. Everybody lost it. So I'm like, damn, OK. And, then, and I remember my, my little contribution to that song, very small, was that uh, a couple of days later, I came back to the studio and Chris had the singing part. Step right. into a world. And that was just supposed to be the intro. The mm -hmm. hook was supposed to be, yes, yes, y'all. You don't stop. stop. KRS one, rock on. That okay. was the hook. So step into it. That singing part was just the intro. And I remember saying to him, yo, that sounds real dope. You should put it through the whole song. Mm -hmm. And I remember him going, he was like, you think so? He just said like that. You think so? Just like that. <laughs> That's all he said. You think so? You sound like it too. <laughs> <laughs> Next thing you know. That's one of the major parts of the song, which helped the record. That, that was Chris's biggest radio song of his career. Step really? Into a world. Yes. Of all the I'll songs you, he did. I'll tell you two things about what you just said. Mm -hmm. Jesse West, for those who don't know, ended up being the first artist ever signed to a label that I was working with, with a guy who used to be one of the interns at a label I used to work at. The label was called Bad Boy. Yes. Jesse West was the first artist and producer who was signed to Bad Boy. When you watch the Supercat remix video for Dolly My Baby, produced. Yes. In, and the rap. Booth, in the booth, when you hear Diddy rap, it sounds just like Jesse West. Third eye, third eye. Because he's trying to be Jesse West. Yes. Okay. Also, the video that was shot, part of it in New York. You remember where the other part was shot? New Orleans. New Orleans, Louisiana, during the Impact Convention. Why? Because I was at the video. You was at that video? Where is Bond? When we sat in the, the picture at the end of it, we're sitting there, a whole group of people. At the end, we took a picture on the stage because we did inside and we did some outside. Right. I was there. We met a bunch of times. 100%. This is what I'm trying to tell you. You that never was in know. 1997. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Oh, shoot. That's the impact. It was the impact convention was going on in New Orleans at the time. I was at the video shoot. Who'd I come with? Was it Ted? It might have been Teddy Ted. They were it in the video. Been, they were I in the video. Teddy Ted. I know. I was there. Special <laughs> K is the first celebrity that I ever met. Right. Um, in Latin quarters. I used to listen to their show every night. The Awesome Two show used to come on at four o'clock in the morning in New York City. Mm -hmm. Hard to stay up and tape. Um, Notice you said tape. We tape. didn't just listen to it. We had to record it because nobody would believe this was happening. And it would be a whole week before you heard hip hop again. Hip hop right. only came on in the mix shows on the weekend. So if you did, if you heard a song on Friday or Saturday night, you're not going to hear it again till next Friday or Saturday if you didn't tape it. Right. So it wasn't readily available like it is now. Right. 
I was in Latin quarters and Special K walked up to me and was like, hey, you're Kara's brother, right? How you doing? I'm Special K from the Awesome 2. And I was so excited to meet <laughs> Special K. Like, yo, I listen to you every week. Like, And his voice sounded exactly like his voice. He's the right. first industry person that I ever met. Shout out to K. I love those guys. Auga, um, transmitting Auga. live all ghetto children. I used to run into K in Pathmark in Jersey City. Yeah. Seriously, used to run into him all the time. That's but, my guy. Okay, so you got two so far, right? Um, I'm going to go. You mentioned Love's Going to Get You. I'm going to go Love's Going to Get You because a lot of that song is autobiographical. Autobiographical. Am I saying it right? Autobiography. Y'all know it. You got me thinking about it. Autobiographical. Autobiographical. Thank you. You know, except for the part where he goes, I'm in junior high with a B plus grade. That was me. That wasn't him. I love it. He stole my life. I love it. I love it. When you read the book, you'll understand. Right. And I was very prominent in that video as well. So I'm gonna stop the like like a superstar. That's all right. right. Automatic weapons called spray my car. And I, I remember accelerated scared as shit. I drove one block to find my brother was hit. He wasn't dead, but the blood was pouring. And all I could think about was Warren. Later I found it was robbing this crew. Now tell me what the fuck am I supposed to do? I'm sorry, Kenny. You, yes. you obviously know I love that song. That was a great I love song. you guys, and I'm always there with that. So Rob in that video is pal joey who made the track mm -hmm. that's the producer of the track pal joey is robbed right. in that video yes i'm gonna go with love's gonna get you and as my third song okay oh man i need a fourth song there's so many i'm gonna go with an obscure one that i produced on the b side of we in there mm -hmm. is a song called feel the vibe feel the beat that I that I produced and it's only on the back of We In There and that's one of my favorite songs that I did with Chris. I'm going to put that in my four and then tell I'm going to tell, go me, tell me tell us a little bit about why that's your your song right there and why that's so a, a favorite for you. Well, first of all, I was a brand new producer at that point. The Sex and Violence album was my first chance to produce with KRS-One, and the first song that I did for him was called We In There. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that was, I played him that beat. Actually, he gave me a SP-1200, which at that time, it cost $2,000, that machine. Mm -hmm. That's the classic machine that made most of hip-hop early music. And um, even by today's standards, a $2,000 machine is ridiculous, but this is 1991 when he gave me this. $2,000 machine he said, here, Here's SP 1200. Here's the book. Figure it out. Come back. Throw you right out there. So six, eight months later, I came back. So he's like, what do you got? It's like a homework assignment. So I had a few tracks. So the first thing I played him was we in there and he liked it. And it ended up becoming one of the songs on the sex and violence album. But Feel the Vibe, Feel the Beat was this track that I had. And we used to, we used to do practice tapes at my house. And um, actually, I'm going to put out some of the practice tape music as a project coming up later. I have practice tapes, even stuff with him and Scott going back to the 80s that I just had in my collection. That's I'm going to put it all out. But uh, that song, Feel the Vibe, Feel the Beat, is like a practice tape song almost that we just brought to the studio. We did it in one hour. 
and just threw it out there. And a lot of people liked it. And I liked how it turned out. And I liked his vocal performance. So that's why I picked that song. It's kind of obscure to most people that don't know BDP, but I'm going to throw that in there off the Sex and Violence album. And my number one. Number one. First of all, I thought that KRS-One was going to be a one-hit wonder. As I say, I hate that term, but I'm going to use that term, one-hit wonder. I thought... What? I don't like the term, one-hit wonder, but I thought... You you thought your brother was going to be a one-hit wonder? I thought after South Bronx... First of all, I was so surprised that my brother had a hit record. I couldn't believe it. And as you guys see, you know, I've been his biggest skeptic our whole life. And, and you know, seeing where we came from, it was what almost would the kids call that today. Huh? What would the kids call that today? You a said hater. Yeah, a hater. I was a hater. I was a hater. I was the first Karis one hater. And for good reason. <laughs> Actually, when you read the book, you'll see what, what I felt was not that far-fetched. You guys see what it turned out to be. Right. But at that time, it seemed ludicrous. Mm. Okay. But then my brother made a hit record. South Bronx was a huge song in New York City and, and wherever hip-hop was playing. It was huge. But I didn't think he had anything else in the chamber. And when MC Shan answered the South Bronx with Kill That Noise, I really thought as a person who listened to the Mr. Magic show, Molly Maul was the number one producer in the game. MC Shan was on fire. When he answered, I thought it was over. I really thought that my brother was finished. That is fair. That is fair. But your brother, as you learned... In the book, as you expressed, when we talked about the neighborhood bully, showed you there was something in him that you couldn't calculate all the time. And you know what? As you mentioned neighborhood bully, I should have known that when a bully steps up, he would respond. But you got to understand music was being a recording artist was so far fetched. Before I get to number one, let me tell you a quick story. Do you remember the singer D-Train? The R&B singer, he had keep on and is something on your mind. He was like okay, a, okay. Uh, yeah, he was like a big singer in, in New York City. He had, right. um, you're the one for me. He had like some disco records. And he was D-Train. And then he turned like a house record or something later on. Yeah, Somebody- bunch of stuff. He's some jingle. Yeah. But he, at this point, in, in 81, he was big in New York, D-Train. Mm. A friend of mine knew D-Train's cousin. And that was exciting. Not D-Train. D-Train's cousin was a star. You actually are related to someone who can make a record. It was so inconceivable that a, that, that a regular person can make a record that D-Train's cousin was a star to us. Wow. If I'd have met D-Train's cousin, I would have been like, wow, forget right. D-Train. The cousin of D-Train was a star. Right. So I say that to say, my brother actually made a record that's playing on the radio? There's no way he could do this again. Right. And... MC Shan dissed him, it's over. And he made a record called The Bridge is Over. And I I chronicle in the book, I don't want to go too deep, but he tried to explain it to me and I was hating and skeptical. And I saw him do it live at Union Square for the first time he ever performed it. I saw him do it live. And to this day, that is my favorite song of his. That song changed the game. And I had no idea. I can't even describe to you how I had no idea that he had this inside of him. And when he hit me, 
it, it, it blew my mind. He didn't come with no subliminals like kids do today. But the difference was, is it was about showing a survival of the fittest mode yes. on wax. Yes. Look at the video. Kids are still having fun. There's no violence. There's no like, I mean, he dissed, you know, you dissed some people, whatever. He dissed Shan. He dissed oh. Mark. He dissed Shantae. Yes. You know, Dougie Fresh gave him some advice in the song right. for those who don't know. And when you watch that video from Red Alert, my dad said, yeah, you know, the whole shirt yeah. and everything. Yeah. And Chris calling him. I can see the video in my head because I just showed it in class the other day. Just no. you know. Um, and talking about how much that song, you say to change the game, it really did in a lot of ways, not only for him, but for the idea that we now have multi-million dollar rap battle leagues. Yes, yes. Around the world because of that song. That was Some the people, first. And, and, no disrespect to, to Mo D and, and Busy B. Yeah, that was the, yeah. the world. Yeah. But this, because we captured it, is it's the Big Bang Theory for battle rap. Absolutely. It's the blueprint. It, yeah, it's the Big Bang. Everything came forth from this record. And to know Chris's personality growing up, you would not think, I don't want to give it away too much, but... No, it, but it, I feel comic books, shout out to Jack Kirby and, and Stan the Man Lee. Lee, yes. You know I was reading, Jack. Yes, you are very... Yes, you, yeah, I appreciate that. You are very, very uh, versed in the book. Come on, man. Uh, yeah. I, you said, I'm going to send it to you. I'm like, I'm on it. And it hasn't been that long. So you really uh, are excellent. Well, you're, you're an intelligent guy. I mean, yeah. you know. It, you got to care. Huh? You got to care, too. And I care about you, Kenny. I love you, man. I, I see you writing new chapters in your life yeah. and continuing to DJ. You're still DJing yeah. everywhere. Yes, I'm still in New York DJing. Yes, I am. Continued success. Thank and you. And, and love. Um, You know how we do. Always fan forever, and uh, we got to play ball one day. We get you. I haven't played ball in so long, man. We can get out there and do a little something when I come back home, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to let people know where they can find you online, find out more about the books. I think it's really important for them to be able to find it and be able to purchase it from you because you did this on your own. Absolutely. Um, I had a couple of deals on the table to publish the book, they were taking a minute, and then I realized that they might change some things. And I didn't want to change anything. I wanted to tell the story how I remembered it and all factual. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go self-publish and put it out myself. Right. And um, and it's done remarkably well for me. I'm I'm very happy with, with success of the book so far. Um, you can get the book. My brother's name is Kenny on Amazon, on Apple Books, on BarnesandNobles.com. It's coming into brick and mortar. Brick. It's coming into brick and mortar stores See? now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but you can get it on Amazon right now. DJ Kenny Parker is my social media handle. I just started a YouTube channel a few weeks ago. and I'm going to be telling more stories, uh, breaking down more BDP things, clearing up some stuff in the book that people might have questions. Uh, so on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, just DJ Kenny Parker. You can find me, and the book is on Amazon, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm enjoying it so far, and I have to finish reading some stuff, but I read so much of it that I'm like, yes, you have. I you reading, have. if I start saying too much about this, I want people to read the book. So I appreciate you, brother, and I'm looking forward to seeing what's next. My dude, uh, more coming, more coming. No doubt.
It is now winning time on the open run with Will Strickland. I'd like to thank my very special guest, my brother Kenny Parker, DJ Kenny Parker, author Kenny Parker, doing this thing. Make sure you pick up. My brother's name is Kenny. His super, super duper autobiographical tome on the birth of a hip-hop icon from very, very difficult circumstances. And when you listen to that interview, you'll find out it's not the same paint-by-numbers story about drugs, guns, and alcohol. Something vastly different. And I appreciate him sharing that with us. And hopefully you get a chance to get it shared with you. As I said, we have one person who will have an opportunity to win one of those books. Just make sure you answer the question posed earlier on in the podcast. And with that being said, it is now time for the news, views, and truths that you choose on the NBA and beyond. It is media day as camps are breaking in the National Basketball Association. And I want to make it also happy birthdays for my man, the motorcade, Kate Cunningham, who just turned 21, the Pistons have a nice, bright future ahead of them. At 24, the veteran in the locker room, Rayford Trey Young of the Atlanta Hawks, working on his leadership skills, working with Nate McMillan to have better communication, effective communication between him and become a more vocal leader as opposed to just a leader by example. I want to shout out my brother, another one of my brothers, just turned 56. Cool Bob Love, Bobito Garcia, had a great birthday. I mean, he did what he loved most. He's dancing and playing music and talking to the crowd and praying for Puerto Rico, supporting Puerto Rico, supporting his homeland. So, shout out to my brother. I love you. Hope you embrace your very special day. Who's embracing the day at home as camp breaks now for the NBA is a man I used to call the one-man army, Jay Crowder, who's sitting out camp because he's in the midst of being traded. He doesn't feel as though he's wanted there in Phoenix. Phoenix is making a move, not only with Robert Sarver, who we'll talk about later, but also with Cameron Johnson, giving him an opportunity for a more prominent role on the squad. When I think of Jake Crowder, I want to tell any championship-level team, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, Golden State, Miami, don't pick up Jake Crowder. I'm not patting his pockets like Devo from Friday. I'm just saying, if you want to win a championship, don't have Jay Crowder on your roster. I'm not blaming him for being a bad guy or anything. It's just that his career, in a lot of ways, in that way, I guess, resembles one Eric Snow. If Eric Snow is on your roster, you're bound to lose a title. This is what I found. In 1996, former Michigan State point guard Eric Snow was on the roster of that 96 Seattle Supersonics team that lost to the Bulls. In 2001, the starting point guard for your Philadelphia 76ers, right next to Allen Ezell Iverson, was one Eric Snow. And in 2007, the starting point guard in the NBA Finals for the Cleveland Cavaliers, you guessed it, Eric Snow. Jay Crowder was a starting small forward in 2020 in the bubble for the Miami Heat. In 2021, he made the finals again with the Phoenix Suns. Luckily, he did not get picked up by the Golden State Warriors, or they might not have won. Note to Memphis, if Dylan Brooks gets injured again, you bring him in, you're not going to the finals. Let me stop messing with Jay Crowder. And talk about these injuries as camp breaks. A guy who cannot catch a break, even though he keeps catching breaks, is Markel Fultz, the former number one pick in the draft, fractures his left toe recently in a workout and will be out indefinitely. If injuries were good luck, this kid would have all of it. Every year he's been in the league mentally or physically injured in one way or another. 
I just want to see him succeed to some degree because I feel bad that he hasn't had the chance to do what he loves doing, which seems to be playing basketball. Speaking of ball, with LeJello, LeAngelo, I like to call him LeJello, like Kenan Thompson calls him when he plays LeVar Ball on television. LeJello Ball signed a two-way contract in Charlotte to play with his younger brother, former Rookie of the Year, LeMelo LeFrance Ball. Another brother, Lonzo, is going to be out six to eight weeks because of that balky knee. Still having problems with it. Going to get it cleaned up some more. Have another surgery on that. That's always tough. Speedy recovery, sir. Also, another speedy recovery to a bad left knee. And he's going to be out eight to 12 weeks. Boston must be cursed. The Time Lord, Robert Williams III, out for that amount of time. He is the anchor to that defense. And without him, are you going to count on a 35 going on 36-year-old Al Horford? That's going to be tough. Grant Williams, this is your life playing the center at six foot five. Talk to Draymond Green. And last but not least on the injury front, James Christian Middleton coming off the left wrist injury. He's not going to be there at the start of the season. And as we move on to some WNBA action from the Capitan Evidente Files at the Open Run HQ, the WNBA and Russia. Do I need to say any more? Free BG? Free BG? Free BG? But now that the season is over, the players who are playing for teams in Russia making a million dollars a year, that's gone. Poof. Anybody who goes over or tries to go over there to play shouldn't even come back or try to come back. It doesn't make sense. So the women like Brianna Stewart, like John Quill Jones, like Emma Mieserman, they're going to play in Turkey. They're going to make quite a bit less than they were making with the oligarchs there in Russia. But they're still going to earn some money. Even Courtney Vandersloot, who is now a Hungarian citizen, she's going to play in Hungary. I guarantee you she's not making anywhere close to what she was making in WNBA, but she's still working. I don't foresee women going back to Russia to play basketball. And for that matter... I wonder how they're dealing with the men going to Russia to play basketball, if they go at all. Something to watch. Instead of going to Russia, Team USA is in Australia doing work. In their fourth game in the FIBA World Cup, they destroyed the scoring record held at one time by Brazil, 143 points, by scoring 145 points against the mighty, mighty South Korean basketball team. I'm being quite facetious. Asia Wilson, WNBA MVP and Defensive Player of the Year, said she's never been around this much scoring talent in her whole career. And I'm not mad at her because she's absolutely correct. And as we think about the WNBA, even though the season just ended, you know how it is. People have these way too early rankings for the entire league. And it's going to look exactly like the playoffs look. I mean, right now, the number one team in the league who could become a dynasty, the Las Vegas Aces, at number two, the Connecticut Sun. At three, the Washington Mystics. Shakira Austin out there playing as well with the U.S. World Cup team. The Seattle Storm. And last but not least, the Chicago Sky, who face myriad questions about their lineup, who's coming back, including the future Hall of Famer, Candace Parker. We're not sure if she's calling it quits or going to come back for one more shot at the crown who won't be back, for sure, as the principal governor of the Phoenix Mercury, who are totally in flux. Don't know what they're going to do with Diana Taurasi, the relationship between Taurasi and Skylar Diggins-Smith, Skylar Diggins, and also Diggins-Smith, Skylar Diggins, and Coach Vanessa Nygaard might be totally, totally gone. On top of the fact, Tina Charles defected to Seattle, and Brittany Griner still in Russia. Robert Sarver's gone. 
he won't be there. As I mentioned on last week's show, Robert Sarver was penalized, but I didn't think it was enough. And apparently the pressure of knowing that he was never going to be allowed to come back and run that team on a day-to-day basis, time to cash out. So he's going to cash out, and he's definitely going to cash out heavily. A team that was purchased in 2004 for about $450 million, currently valued at $1.8 billion, they might double down on it because some of the guys who are angling to own not only the Suns, but also the Mercury, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, Bob Iger, used to be the head of Disney, and Larry Elson, the head of Oracle, all looking for a new investment, and that could happen down there. People have speculated, oh, they're going to let LeBron buy the team. He's going to be the first player owner. The bylaws of the NBA do not allow an owner to be a player and an owner, or they'd have done it for Michael Jeffrey Jordan when he was trying to get the Washington Wizards, and Abe Poland played him like a $5 prostitute. That's a whole other conversation. And despite the come up of Sarver, a young man who will be a little bit lighter in his pockets, A1 since day one, Anthony Edwards, for also making insensitive remarks toward the LGBTQ community and also racially insensitive remarks, utilizing a term that Robert Sarver used as well, was fined $40,000 for his transgressions. Hopefully he learns from that. For those who might say, well, why is he being thrown out of the league for saying what he said? Stop voting for Donald Trump. Whole nother conversation again. There was a trade just recently in the NBA. My man, Boyan Bogdanovich, who should not be confused with Bogdan, Bogdan, Bogdanovich, was moved from the fire sale in Utah to the Detroit Pistons for Kelly Olenek and Saban Lee. I like this pickup for them. They lost Jeremy Grant, but they found a shooter was more efficient, about the same size. Clearly won't give you the defensive presence that Jeremy Grant could give you, but he can shoot that thing. Shooter. Another guy who was traded just recently forced his way into a trade for sure from Philadelphia to Brooklyn was one Benjamin David Simmons, who was either a great politician or got an attitude adjustment because in his appearances on both the old man and the three with former teammate J.J. Redick and also on Jalen Jacoby, he had a great time in Philly doing the professional courtesy thing, just said it didn't work out, so he's not giving us everything. And... Has he learned his lesson? I don't know. But he's earning his money. He got his money back in the settlement, or a lot of it, with the Sixers. Going to have a new lease on life this year, like Andy Dufresne from Shawshank. So we'll see how that goes. And whether he's going to help Kevin Wayne Durant and Kyrie Andrew Irving move closer toward a championship. Haven't seen evidence of it yet. Here's his chance. Salute to my man, Christian James McCollum. A two-year, $64 million extension with New Orleans bringing his total contract to four years and $133 million and stabilizing that backcourt. They needed someone like that, a veteran guy who could play, who's been through the wars, and helping that team, that young team that I really enjoy watching, one of my must-watch TV teams this year, the New Orleans Pelicans. Shouts out to CJ, and shouts out to Draymond Green, who should be feeling a certain way about things because he's not been offered an extension from the Golden State Warriors. Maybe they feel as though we've gotten everything we can get from Draymond Green. Four championships in eight years. He's been a key part to that. I say he's the most key in a lot of ways. But that's me. And what that means to Draymond. I'm going to watch these media day press conferences. And I'm going to see what he says, if he says anything at all. If GM Bob Meyer says anything at all. If Joe Lacob, the owner and, and governor of the team, says anything at all, but that's going to be very interesting to watch because repeating in the NBA is very difficult 
And with contracts coming up, it's always the delicate ballet that these guys must dance. Before we go, I want to shout out my man, Ed Molina, who came on with me and we talked about not only the fallacies and perception and reality around WNBA and how successful it was this past year. Go ladies, ladies first at all times. But also when we talked about the Robert Sarver saga and how Adam Silver can't fire Robert Sarver or get rid of him. He's an employee. You can't fire your employer. Much, much more nuanced. You can check that out. I put some video posts up on my social media accounts. You know what those are. Make sure to reach out and check them out. And if you have something to say, let me know. But I started looking at these NBA rankings. And they ranked the top 100 players in the league on ESPN. And the top five, to some surprise to some people, went like this. At number five, Wardell Stephen Curry, the second. At number four, Joel Hansen B, the colonel's son. At number three, Luka Lamar Doncic. That's with two R's. At number two, Nikola Jermaine Jokic. That's J apostrophe M-A-Y-N-E. And number one, Giannis Ugo Laterrence It's funny because a couple of weeks ago, I said the new faces of the league were these top three guys before the rankings even came out. The children of the dream team are these guys. And if you don't watch out, because Embiid is at number four right now. You have all foreign players. You have four of the MVPs league at the number one and number two spots. The global game is truly that now. And to harken back to Screaming Ain't one more time before we get out of here. He said, on no planet would I ever say that there are five other players better than Kevin Wayne Durant and the hashtag he who shan't be named. Who are ranked number eight for Durant behind Jason Tatum. And at number six, to go along with his jersey number, the hashtag he was be named. Number six. He averaged 30 last year. Is it fuel? We'll find out. Because Giannis Antetokounmpo said, I'm not number one. My belief is the last man standing, the person who wins the championship, the best player in that team, that's the best player in the league. That would go to Wardell Stephen Curry the second, according to Giannis. But according to me, the number one player on my squad, the number one ranked, is you, the listener. So, until next week, do remember, do what's popular with the population, make sure you don't get beat off the dribble, and keep listening to The Open Run with Will Strickland. Rich kid, my mellow, my man, do what you do when you do it. Easy. Easy.